When I was a, a new Christian in high school, someone gave me a, a book by a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the book was called The Cost of Discipleship. And I can tell you that as a new Christian, I didn't understand hardly any of it. However, one thing hit the target. It was Bonhoeffer's warning against what he called cheap grace. God's grace is free, but it's never cheap. God's grace is free, but it is never cheap. Grace is costly because God gave up his own son for our sins in order to save us by his grace. Grace is God's blood-bought favor. Cheap grace says that you can accept Christ as Savior, but not follow him as Lord. Cheap grace says, be yourself, not deny yourself. Just to give you a flavor of cheap grace, this is what cheap grace sounds like, okay? Cheap grace sounds like this, quote, I would like to buy about $3 worth of grace. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I'm changed. I don't want so much grace that I learn to hate covetousness or lust. I certainly don't want so much grace that I start to love my enemies or cherish self-denial or contemplate missionary service. I would like to be liked but I don't want to love those who are different from me or who don't look like me. I just want enough grace to make my future secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much grace that I find my ambitions redirected or my discomfort enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of grace, please. Cheap grace isn't grace. Cheap grace isn't grace because real grace, saving grace, invites us to a life of costly discipleship, a lifelong path of following King Jesus. And this morning we return to our studies in Luke chapter 9. And in Luke chapter 9, it's a turning point in the gospel according to Luke. In this chapter, Jesus, in verse 51, sets his face like flint and begins his march to Jerusalem. He begins his march to Jerusalem. It'll take him to chapter 18 and 19 before he gets to Jerusalem. And along the way to the cross, Jesus teaches his disciples the way of the cross. But it begins in this chapter when Jesus says we're going to Jerusalem and we don't have to wonder what's going to happen when the Savior gets there because he tells us beforehand. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus says in this chapter, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. 
I'm going to be crucified and die. And then I'm going to be raised again. Who wants to follow me? This is what he tells us. And I want to begin reading there in verse 23 as he lays out both the call and the cost of discipleship. This is what Holy Scripture says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for each one of us is that we would not only begin to follow him, but that we would follow him and keep following this Savior all of our lives, all by his grace. So in this passage, there's really two things. There's the call to discipleship, verse 23. And then there's the cost of discipleship, verses 24 to 27. I want us to look at both of these before we go and enjoy the supper together at the end of our time. Number one, I want you to consider the call. Consider the call to discipleship in verse 23. Jesus says, notice the call. If anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus issues the call to discipleship. Now, I want to be really clear. When I use the word disciple, what do I mean? A disciple is more than simply a learner. A disciple includes being taught things and learning, but discipleship also includes, a disciple is also someone who's a follower. So these rabbis in the first century would walk around, traveling around, their disciples would follow them, listening the whole time to their teaching. So a disciple follows his master. Discipleship is your individual following of your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipling is what you do to help other people follow Jesus. So if you have questions about that, talk to me afterwards. When I use the word discipleship, I'm talking about your and my individual following of Jesus. So just picture the scene again. Jesus has just said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected, persecuted, spat upon, beaten, mocked, killed, crucified, rise again. Who wants to follow me? That's the context. And this radical call to discipleship has three parts. First, notice the first part of discipleship is deny yourself. Do you see that? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. At the very heart of Christian discipleship is self-denial. 
Your discipleship, in essence, begins with you denying yourself. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To follow Christ means the death of living for what you want, your aims, your aspirations, your goals, your dreams, your plans. You submit everything to him. He is your master. He is your king. He is your Lord. It doesn't mean your aims and ambitions go away. They are all subsumed under what he wants. When he taught us to pray, what did he say? Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And then what does he pray? Thy will be done. We live for what he wills and what he wants. Now, this is shocking to us because we live in a time and in a culture that celebrates the self. We are surrounded with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem and self-expression and self-assertiveness and self-enhancement and self-care. Did you know you're supposed to care for yourself? I've heard that word. I didn't know what that meant. What does it mean, self-care? You're supposed to care for yourself. In his excellent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman put it like this. He describes one of the major shifts from the past to modernity was this, basically this. In the past, this is how you pursued excellence. You pursued excellence by imitating something greater than yourself. So there are the virtues, goodness, truth, beauty, and you sought to conform yourself to those virtuous realities. But that's not where we live anymore. We don't live in a world like that. We don't live to conform to something greater than us. No, listen, in our world, our world is defined by finding authenticity, by inventing yourself on your own terms. So the modern world says to you, be yourself, refashion yourself, refashion your identity, reshape yourself into whatever you want to be. And what does Jesus say to this present evil age that is consumed with the self? He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. That's the first step in discipleship. Second step, it gets a lot worse. (laughs) Carry the cross every day. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And notice this beautiful word that only Luke supplies day by day, daily. The second aspect of discipleship is you taking up or carrying one's cross. And once again, this is shocking language to us. But unlike the first statement, deny yourself, this doesn't shock us enough. In the first century... In the Roman Empire, crucifixion was, according to Cicero, the supreme penalty. Roman citizens couldn't even use the word crucifixion in public because it was so vilified. It was the most shameful, painful, wretched form of state-sanctioned execution ever invented. It was all done publicly. So it was only reserved for the worst of criminals. 
Now think about this. It was designed for maximum pain, maximum deterrence, and maximum humiliation. That's why they were always done in in public in daytime, often along roads where people would pass by. Why? Because the Roman Empire wants to say to everybody, you cross us, you literally will end up on the cross. Crucifixion was done in public areas and the one who was crucified was stripped naked, shame, and then required to carry their own cross to the place where they're going to be crucified. You're carrying your own instrument that you're going to die upon. Jews, of course, in the first century not only had all of the Roman stigma associated with crucifixion, but he was even more compounded for the Jews. Why? Because according to Deuteronomy 21, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. So not only did crucifixion depict the curse of the Romans, it was the curse of God for someone to die on a tree. One time I was driving down Franconia Road and I saw across the the other side of the street on the, high, on the sidewalk, this guy carrying this massive white cross down Franconia Road. And he was just walking down the road with it. And as I slowed down and looked over, I noticed at the bottom of the cross, there were like three wheels. And I thought, that's cheating, right? <laughs> but I also started thinking like, When we read this verse, Jesus doesn't intend for us to carry a big wooden white cross with wheels on it. Jesus is using an image here. He's using a metaphor here. What is he he getting at? Let, Let me try to summarize it. Jesus is saying, if you would be my disciple, if you would follow me, you need to live as though you yourself were sentenced to die like this. Jesus's disciples are to follow him to the death every single day. Let me say that again. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you're to live and follow him every single day to the death. A disciple of Jesus has died to sin, died to the world, died to selfish ambition, died to sinful desires, You've died to living for your own name. Your daily life, day by day, day by day, is devoted to honoring, glorifying, praising, and even suffering if it's required for your king. This is the way Paul put it. If you say, Paul, what does Jesus mean by take up your cross daily and follow him? This is what he's going to say. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Yeah, but Paul, what about those those sinful desires? He looks at you and says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. And you say, well, what about living for your own glory? What about living for what you, what, how you can make a name for yourself, Paul? And Paul says, no, far be it from me to boast in 
anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what it means. That's Galatians 6.14. That's what it means to take up the cross daily. Discipleship means your identity as a follower of Jesus is nailed directly to his cross. That's what it means. You're not your own anymore. If you want to be a Christian and live your own life and claim to be a Christian, you're not a Christian. A Christian says, I am not my own. I belong body and soul, life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying here. And if this all sounds like bad news, listen to me. One day in hell will be infinitely worse than a life carrying the cross. So you deny yourself. You take up his cross daily. And then number three, here's the third part. Follow me or follow Christ forever. That's what he says. When he says, follow me, he says, follow me forever. This imperative, this third imperative, it's in the present tense. It's intended to invoke a lifelong following of Savior. There's never a time where you say, well, yeah, I'm taking a, a day off from following Jesus. You follow him the rest of your life. Now, I want you to just think about this. I love in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, 4, John describes the redeemed in glory this way. He says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that beautiful? That's a Christian. A Christian is wherever the lamb is, that's where I want to be. I want to follow him wherever he goes. Now, like I said before, all of this may sound like this is pretty rough, right? I didn't come to church to get my face ripped off, right? What's going on here? Well, do you hear, I mean, do you hear in those words when Jesus says there in verse 23, follow me, do you hear the accent on follow? Or do you hear the accent on me? Brothers and sisters, he is the risen Lord. There is a divine imperative here. But do you hear just like the rich young ruler when he says, go give away everything you have, come and follow me. And he he went away sad because he had so much stuff. But Jesus is saying, you're getting the the best in the world. You get me. (laughs) He says, you get me. What else do you want? What must a man possess if he possesses the possessor of all things? It's the greatest news in the world. Follow me. I hope you hear that he's not inviting you to something worse. He's inviting you to something infinitely better. There is an eternity and an infinite amount of grace and glory in that little word, me. That word, me, is my favorite word in this whole passage. If you don't, if you don't get anything out of this passage, just stare at that word, me. It's unbelievable. He is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He is everything 
And he says in discipleship, yes, it will be hard. Yes, you will have to deny yourself. Yes, you will suffer, but you get me. So follow me. Jesus summons us to him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear me. Listen to me. You begin to be a Christian by denying yourself, by repenting, by turning from yourself and by trusting in this one that we're reading about. The one who lived and died and rose again for our salvation. And Jesus in the gospel is presented as good news because we deserve hell. We deserve wrath. We deserve judgment because we've done whatever we wanted to do with all that God has given to us. We have sinned against an infinitely glorious God. And yet, instead of just condemning the whole world, in his love, he sent his son, his beloved son, to be the savior of sinners for any who receive him in the empty hands of faith. Turn to Christ and rest your weary soul on him. It will be hard to follow Jesus in this world. But friend, it will be worth it. If you have questions about what that means, I'll be standing out in the freezing cold afterwards. I'd love to talk with you about that. I always forget my coat. I've been asked, where's your coat? 56 times, and I always forget it. I would love to talk with you about what it means to know Christ, to follow him. That's the first thing, the call to discipleship, the call to discipleship. Now in verses 24 to 26, Jesus calls us to count the cost. That's number two, count the cost. Don't just consider the call. Jesus wants you to count the cost. Following Jesus is hard, but I love how Jesus doesn't hide, the, hide all this in the fine print. These aren't like footnotes, like Oh, everything's going to be easy. No, he he tells us it's going to be hard. But here's the great thing. He tries in verses 24 to 26 to argue with your soul because he knows right now you're thinking, I don't know. This sounds not good. Jesus makes arguments in verses 24 to 26 to persuade our souls that following him is worth the cost. So later in Luke's gospel, the reason I'm using the word count the cost, because you look at the verses, it doesn't say anything about counting the cost. The reason I'm saying count the cost here, I have exegetical warrant for this. Luke 14, 27. Listen to this. Jesus says something almost identical. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Same thing, right? Then he says this, verse 28, for... Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So what Jesus is doing is he wants you to go into this discipleship with your eyes wide open. And what he does, he supplies a threefold explanation of why you should count the cost and why it's worth it. So the first thing he begins with is a paradox. Look at verse 24. Uh, a paradox, children, is a, is a seemingly contradictory statement that's actually true. It's, it's saying something that doesn't seem like it could be true, but the more you think about it, it is true. Um, verse 24, this is a paradox. And, and by the way, you can tell he's giving you an argument because of the threefold use of the word for. For. Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus, no, notice Jesus says, if you try to save your life, that's why he says would save. You can't actually save your life in this world. You can try though. If you would save your life, if you aspire to save your life in this world, he promises you something. You will eventually lose it. You will lose your life if you try to save it. But paradoxically, Jesus promises that if you lose your life, notice, for my sake, he promises you'll save it. We saw this earlier in Luke chapter 12. The guy's trying to continue to build barns. He's thinking about saving his life in this world, and he lost it. That's what he says in Luke chapter 12. If you try to save your life apart from God, you'll die and you'll lose everything. But if you, if you, as it were, lose your life for Christ, not just talking about martyrdom, it's to lose your life. Your, your life becomes a life devoted to Christ. He says you will save it. One of my heroes, Jim Elliott, he said in his journal, he said, he wrote this down in his journal. He said, he is no, he's thinking about Luke 12. He is no fool. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to save what he cannot lose, to gain what he cannot lose. So Christian, Jesus is saying, count the cost, count the cost. Second thing, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits, your Bible may say himself or his soul? Verse 25, Jesus has one of those big balance scales. Remember those balance scales that have two sides? Jesus says on the one side of the balance scale, you have the whole world. Everything in the world. Think about everything that Satan offered Jesus in his temptation. All the kingdoms, everything in the world on this side. And on this side, all you have on this scale, on this side, is one soul. And Jesus says the one soul weighs more, is worth more than the whole world. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 25. Imagine, listen, imagine losing something so precious that the gift of the entire world is unable to offset the loss. I remember reading a few uh, weeks ago in a magazine, a story about a, a Welshman who lost his key to a half billion dollars of Bitcoin. I didn't know what Bitcoin, I mean, everyone talks about Bitcoin, but I don't really know what it is. I know it's cryptocurrency, but I read the article to learn more about Bitcoin. The article began like this, quote, if things had gone just a bit differently, James Howes might be today as rich as the Queen of England. And the article goes on to say that this man, Howes, got, he got into digital cryptocurrency early on and he acquired 8,000 bitcoins. It's a lot. But during, this is tragic, but during some spring cleaning around his home, his wife accidentally threw away the computer hard drive that contained his 64 character key to unlock his Bitcoin. So think of it this way. It's like having all this gold and you throw away the, the, you know, the, what do you call it? What? The what? The combination. There you go. Sorry. The, the hard drive with the, the 64 key bit or the carrot key, 
Yeah, thrown into a, 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 a landfill in Newport, which is where he lives. It's, it's a small city on the Welsh, Welsh coast. And for several years, he knows the, the part of the landfill where the, the hard drive is located. He knows where it is. And for years, he's asked the local authorities, can I just dig in that spot to get my key back, my hard drive back? And they've said no. It's ruined his life, by the way. But here's the point. Imagine sitting on a half of a billion dollar pot of gold only to have it thrown out by mistake. Now, Jesus is saying there's something worse than losing $500 million in Bitcoin. What Jesus is saying is, even if you found Hal's lost key, even if you acquired all 19 million Bitcoins in the world, even if you had every gold bar in Fort Knox, even if you had every diamond on earth and you ruled as an absolute king over all of creation, Jesus says, even if you had all of that, it would profit you nothing if you forfeit or lose your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen to the words of Bishop Ryle. The loss of a soul is the heaviest loss that can befall a man. The worst and most painful diseases, the most distressing bankruptcy, the most disastrous shipwreck are a scratch compared to the loss of a soul. Every other loss is bearable. But the loss of a soul is forever. It is to lose God and to lose Christ and to lose heaven and to lose glory and to lose happiness for all eternity. It is to be cast away forever, helpless and hopeless in hell. Do you see that Jesus is saying? And he says to us, count the cost. Count the cost. Third reason, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus gives one final motivation for us to follow him and to count the cost. And this time, Jesus, instead of appealing to where he's going, to Jerusalem, Jesus points to the future. He uses eschatology, the the end, to help us live in the present. So Jesus points forward to that day when he comes in glory, not as a suffering servant, but as the conquering king of glory. The glory of God, the glory of the Father, the glory of the heavenly host will be the glory of the Son on that day when he comes. And Jesus says, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me now, he will be ashamed of you when he comes in glory. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, first of all, let's just state the reality. What could be worse than for the exalted Jesus to be ashamed of you in front of the whole world when he comes Jesus says there in verse 26, he assumes that followers of Jesus will be tempted to be ashamed of him and ashamed of his words. That's what he assumes. That's why he tells us this. 
So all of us in this room are, are, will be tempted, if you haven't already, to be ashamed of Christ and to be ashamed of his words. We're all attempted, we're tempted with the fear of man, right? So think about this. If you're following Jesus in your neighborhood, in your schools, kids, in the workplace, in your family, you may be asked questions about your faith that tempt you to cower back in shame. Questions like this. How can you say there's only one true faith? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic and transphobic? Doesn't the Bible condone slavery? How could a loving God allow suffering? How could a loving God send people to hell? Maybe you've heard any or all of those questions. And when you hear those questions, you might be tempted to shrink back in the fear of man, to be ashamed of Christ and his words. Now, I don't believe that this passage is teaching us that if you're ashamed one time of Jesus, then that's it. That's the unpardonable sin. I know that's not what Jesus is saying because there was someone there that day named Peter. Peter was there at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus said those words. And just a few chapters later, Peter's not going to be ashamed once of Jesus, but what? Three times. He's going to deny Jesus three times publicly. But we know after Jesus rose again, he restored Peter in John 21. Peter repented with tears. And it was Peter that God used on that day at Pentecost to stand up before all of Jerusalem and preach God's word. So I don't believe Jesus is saying this is like a one-time thing. If you're ashamed, that's it. I believe, based on what he says later in Luke chapter 12, that this language of being ashamed of Jesus is a final failure to acknowledge him as Lord in this world. That's what I think, I, I think he means. I take his warning about being ashamed of him to mean a final, decisive refusal to acknowledge him publicly in this world. In other words, it means to deny Christ. Let me give you a story. I'm always encouraged by stories like this because it puts the context that we live in in a different context. Um, some of you maybe know the, the name Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was a, a Christian. He was a leader in Romania uh, for the cause of Christ for many years. Um, in 1945, the communists seized power in Romania. And they called, as the communist troops poured in, they, they set up a communist government and they had what they called the, the Congress of Cults, where they invited all the religious leaders to basically denounce their faith, as it were, and to uh, swear loyalty to the Communist Party. And so Wormbrand and his wife, Sabina, were actually at the Congress that day. These were being broadcast over the radio to the whole country. And religious leader after religious leader was getting up and swearing allegiance to the new government. Sabina turns to Richard and says to him, quote, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. And Wormbrand turns to his wife and says, if I do so, you will lose your husband. And Sabina replied, I do not wish to have a coward 
as a husband. And so, Wormbrand goes to the podium and declares to the Congress and to the whole nation that their duty was to glorify God and Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. That Jesus Christ alone is the one to whom ultimate loyalty is due. And the consequences were 16 years of imprisonment and solitary confinement and torture for he and for his wife. But upon his release, Wormbrand's influence in that land was dramatically increased. He, he smuggled in millions of New Testaments. And the gospel spread because of the faithful witness of both Wormbrand and his wife and their ministry, the voice of the martyrs. We may not face a Congress of cults. But Jesus' words to us are the same. Count the cost. Let me close as we prepare to go to the Lord's Supper. I want us to to look at verse 27 because I think there's something in, in verse 27 that help us to do both the call to denial and also the call to carry the cross and also the call to count the cost. In verse 27, I believe there's a one last thing that we're supposed to do, and that is to cherish the Christ, to cherish the glorious Christ. In verse 27, Jesus has just given this summons to follow that's going to have self-denial and suffering. It's going to be hard, but he wants you to see in verse 27 that it's worth it. It's worth it. It's so worth it. I remember reading several years ago a story, a book about Ernest Shackleton. Some of you maybe know Ernest Shackleton. Um, He was a famous Arctic explorer that led three amazing expeditions to the South Pole, uh, and he explored Antarctica. It hadn't really been done much before. This is how he advertised his expedition. Uh, He clearly wasn't in marketing. Quote, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Sign me up, right? Isn't that amazing? Now, now, what sane person is going to read this and say, I'm, a, I'm all in? The only person who would read that and say, I'm all in, is the person who believes that the costs are worth the reward, right? And what Jesus is doing in verse 27, he's giving you a little glimpse of the Christ that we're following. And he wants you to, to know that the, the glory that is to come is worth The costs to get there. Look at verse 27. I'll I'll spend more time on this next week. I just want to highlight one thing. He says in verse 27, look what he says right there. Very end. He says, I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, there are many interpretations of this verse. Um, Let me just give you the right one. So the, so Some people argue it's talking about the resurrection. Some talking about that Jesus is referring to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some people think it's it's an echo of what's going to happen at the second coming. Some people think it has to do with the missionary expanse of the church. 
And I think all of these are sound interpretations. I think the better interpretation is to look at verse 27, at least partially fulfilled in the scene that immediately follows our passage, namely the transfiguration. Now, why do I say that? Um, Not all the disciples are going to be there when this happens. Only Peter, James, and John will be up on the mountain. But here's why I say this. When they go up on the mountain, we'll see this next week, they see the glory of Christ. The, the, The veil is pulled back and they see the king's glory. And we know from other passages of Scripture that that transfiguration, it wasn't just about a mountaintop experience for those three disciples. It also pictured the second coming. It was, a, it was a, an echo. It was like a preview of coming attractions. Jesus pulled back the veil and says, this is the king's glory. This is the glory that I just spoke about that you're going to see on the last day when I come. Peter even talks about this in 2 Peter. He talks about the glory that he saw on that mountain when he heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son. He talks about that in light of even the Christ who's coming again. And so I think what's happening in verse 27 is that Jesus is giving a glorious preview of what's to come. He's pointing us again to the end. And Jesus wants you to know that the glory that's coming is far better than any costs you suffer in this life. Jesus would affirm everything that Paul says. He says in in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, this momentary light affliction is producing for ourselves an eternal weight of what? Glory. It's beyond all comparison. So brothers and sisters, Let me just close with these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, if you know Bonhoeffer's story, he he kept his eyes on that eternal weight of glory that was coming. Bonhoeffer was an outspoken critic of the Nazi party in Germany, and he was imprisoned in Flossburg because of his outspoken stance against the Nazis. He suffered there as a POW, And because of his refusal to follow the Fuhrer, um, he confessed, I'm a follower of Christ, not not Hitler. He had bowed his knee to Christ, and so he refused to bow his knee to the leader of the Nazis. And so Bonhoeffer was executed. He was executed on April 9th, 1945. This was just a few days before Flossberg was liberated by American soldiers. This is what his final words were when he was taken to the gallows. He said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. Only eight years earlier, Bonhoeffer had written a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He wrote these words. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And grace, it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. 
And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. So what words ought to be ringing in your ears? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly father, we pray as we reflect on what you call us to be and to do that you'd help us to fix our eyes on the Savior, the one who was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, the one who rose again for our justification, the one who lives and reigns, the one who's coming again. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him, that we might follow him faithfully in this world until that day when we see him face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.